Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We've all heard it before. 60 is the new 50, 50 is the new 40, etc. It's all in the service of our fear or dread of aging, of death, and the loss of the endless possibilities of youth. We believe that as we turn the corner into the proverbial back nine, that a kind of midlife crisis would overtake us. For a generation of narcissistic baby boomers, it seemed like the logical thing. But a surprising thing happened along the way. Many of those same baby boomers began to appreciate age and its companions of wisdom and calmness. Soon boomers actually began to thrive in middle age. And that's the story that my guest Barbara Bradley Haggerty tells in her new book, Life Reimagined. Barbara Bradley Haggerty is an award-winning journalist who spent nearly 20 years as a correspondent for NPR covering law and religion. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling Fingerprints of God, and it is my pleasure to welcome Barbara Bradley Haggerty here to talk about her new book, Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. This idea that suddenly midlife was not the worst thing in the world. (laughs) There there was a tipping point when that kind of happened. What's going on there? You know, I I think as baby boomers get older, they're realizing that, oh, wow, you know what? The midlife crisis that I thought was inevitable, I'm not having it. And in fact, that corresponds with research because you know there's this myth of the there's this whole cultural phenomenon called midlife crisis right and the man in the red sports car and the new spouse and all of that um that really came from a couple of studies that were very very small of men done in the 60s and then when gail Sheehy wrote passages then it became a cultural phenomenon everyone's supposed to have a midlife crisis but as baby boomers this bulge in the population moved into their middle years they found that they actually weren't having them and u.s uh, psychologists picked up on this they started interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people are you having a kind of crisis about the loss of opportunities and impending death and this whole angst about aging are you having that and they're like no no, I'm not having that. Yeah, I lost my job. That was really crummy. But yeah, I got another one. I'm doing better. And so what they found is that this midlife crisis afflicts maybe 10% of the population. And the rest of the rest of the people, Gen Xers, baby boomers, are are doing pretty well. Now, Jeff, I want to be have a little asterisk here, which <laughs> is that midlife is not unalloyed happiness. Midlife is a complicated time. We get wrinkles. We have health scares. We lose things like jobs and um, spouses and parents. It's not a particularly um, exuberant time of life. And it's also a time of life that's full of responsibilities. Kids, aging parents, mortgages, heavy responsibilities at work, college tuition, that kind of thing. And so it's not that midlifers are giddy with happiness but they have very meaningful lives and they aren't in a funk about you know uh, all my dreams are dying and i only have a few years left and so i'm going to buy a red sports car they're not that is not their condition their condition is one of meaning and seriousness of purpose which eventually will become happier the studies show you actually become happier in your 50s and 60s and 70s There's also this thing that happens in the 50s that you talk about, a kind of sweet spot where you have a certain degree of intelligence, a certain degree of knowledge, and and a greater sense of kind of emotional self-control, all of which combines to to make life better in some respects. 
You know, I think the big fear for a lot of midlifers is that our brains are going to mush and we're all going to end up, you know, with dementia. I mean, it's a very, very real concern. But what was so encouraging to find in doing this research is that that we are at our peak of intellectual performance in our in our 50s um, early 50s or so and the reason is that we are losing yes it's true we are losing some form some types of intelligence particularly fluid intelligence which is our ability to solve novel problems you know think of Sherlock Holmes right um, we're losing that we're getting our brain processing speed is getting a little slower these things are happening after the age of 30 but at the same time what's really cool is that our crystallized intelligence which is all the stuff we scoop up in a lifetime, which um, our expertise, our experience, our wisdom, learning how to navigate the workplace, our perspective, all of that stuff is increasing right through the 70s. And what happens in your 50s is you're actually in a really good place because you haven't lost very much of that one fluid intelligence, but you've gained a whole lot of crystallized intelligence. And it's why if you are looking for a surgeon, you want the 50-year-old surgeon and not the 30-year-old. The 30-year-old may be faster, maybe more nimble, but the 50-year-old has seen it before, right? He knows or she knows what to do when there's a complication on the operating table. And that's why you want someone with wisdom and experience, and that's what middle-agers are. To what extent has technology helped all of this? in that basic factual kinds of information is at our fingertips now. And it's really the crystallization, as you say, of knowledge and the ability to apply that knowledge that really is the valuable skill today, which is the skill that comes with that kind of aging. That's really interesting. Yes, I, I think um, a lot of baby boomers and even Gen Xers look at uh, the youngins, the millennials, and they say, oh boy, you know, they grew up uh, texting on their iPhone. You know, they were born with an iPhone in their hand. And <clears throat> and we, I know we feel a little bit less confident about using technology. But when you think about it, all baby boomers use technology and they learn, they can get the news instantly. They can research things really easily. I mean, the fact that I could, instead of having a midlife crisis, decide to go on the internet and begin researching how to avoid a midlife crisis, that adds to my store of knowledge, and that's all thanks to the to the internet, to technology. So I would say that, that it's a great boon. I would also say that um, people wonder how how are they going to keep their brains strong through the rest of their lives. And I think a lot of people think, well, I need to do brain training. I need to sit in front of a computer and do all of these painful exercises. Or I need to do crosswords, and I don't really like crosswords, so what am I going to do? Well, the fact is that anything that is challenging for you and engaging will strengthen your brain, will strengthen your crystallized intelligence, and not only that, it'll help your fluid, your working memory, your fluid intelligence. And so if, you, if you've always wanted to learn the guitar, that, and you pick it up, that is going to increase your intelligence. If you want to learn Spanish, that's going to do it too. Cycling, I started cycling. There's nothing better for your brain than exercising. So there are so many ways, other than technology, to just learn to strengthen your brain and it really comes down to what engages you what is hard what is novel and what will you keep doing and the trick is not doing the same things over again. right right precisely so if you're good at crossword puzzles i would not suggest that you do more crossword puzzles mm-hmm. you're already good at that um 
you should you should try something hard, learn the guitar or something like that. So you're right. There you have to break this kind of procedural. You have to get out of procedural memory where what you do is almost by rote, driving a car, or you're pretty good at crosswords or whatever. And you have to get out of that and start doing things that are actually challenging, so that you create new connections in your brain. One of the other areas that you talk about that seems essential in all of this is our interpersonal relationships and mm, the degree yeah. to which they have a broader impact in how we see the world. That is so true. This was really eye-opening for me. Um, both friends and and I have a chapter on marriage and I have a chapter on friendships. And uh, really a lot of it, it's they overlap a lot. So let me just talk more about friendships because that's a little, that's universal. Um, it turns out that what friends do, and any close and trusted person, what they do is they they take away the burden of life for you, from you. So they, I have a friend named Jody Hassett, and she's an ABC. She was an ABC producer for, producer for a long time. She and I would talk about the news business. I would talk to her about how do I cover this story, how do I think about this. Talking to Jody actually offloaded the stress of having to deal with my work workplace problems all by myself and in fact and you you have friends that do all sorts of things it's not just workplace friends it's other friends as well um and what what this means is that friendships not only emotionally help you friendships actually biologically help you this is true of marriages too they biologically help you literally when you are with friends if you have a network of friends your your stress levels go down your cortisol levels go down your immune system is boosted you're likely to live longer and preserve your memory with social networks so it's not just a fun thing to do to have friends or family. It's actually the key to surviving and thriving right through the end of your life. Where does fear fit into this? Fear of, of aging, fear of dementia, fear that, that in many ways is, is self-perpetuating in terms of the problems of aging. Yes, you know, I... I mean, I felt that fear. Um, I I would feel these twinges of, oh my gosh, what's happening? Every time I couldn't remember a colleague's name or forgot where I put my keys or I can't rem <laughs> remember a telephone number. Um, I think fear plays into it, but I think the only thing you can do is face into it because actually once you look at once you look hard at the science, which I didn't want to do, I was a little afraid of what it would say, but once you look hard at the research, you will realize that there is a lot under our control, a huge amount under our control. And if I can give you one, my possibly my favorite study that gave me so much hope, it, it, it changed my life. So researchers at Rush University Medical Center have been following older adults from like age 65 on for the last 20 years and what happens is they give them cognitive and psychological tests every year and then when the person dies they do an autopsy of their brain it's all agreed in advance and they've done now hundreds of autopsies so really the results are pretty indisputable what they found is that a third of the people who actually had Alzheimer's, the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's, they saw that on autopsy. A third of those people never exhibited a single symptom of dementia. No memory loss, no personality change, no confusion, nothing. So then they could go back and say, oh my gosh, what did these people do? What did they do when they were 60? And to, to let them escape, they're called escapees, to let them escape the symptoms of dementia. 
And what they, what they found is there are a lot of things that are important. The people who did best were um, had a social network. They were intellectually engaged. They they were not obese. They ex- tried to exercise and keep their weight down, which was actually very, very important. But there was one factor that seemed to really outshine all of the others, and it was a psychological trait called purpose in life. So people who had a reason to get out of bed in the morning, whether it's their grandchild or the political cause they're committed to or their church or their work or their kids, whatever it is, if you have a reason to get out of bed in in the morning and have a purpose in life that's greater than yourself, you really increase your chances of escaping the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, frankly, I don't care if I get Alzheimer's. I just don't want the dementia part of it. I don't want the symptoms of it. Mm -hmm. If I get it, that's too bad. But uh, really, I want to keep my memory intact. And this, this study is so stunning. If you have low purpose in life, little purpose, you're two and a half times more likely to exhibit the symptoms of Alzheimer's than someone high in purpose in life. Two and a half times. So there, what's really cool about this research, Jeff, is that we can, we can actually do something. If we look at the research, we can actually do things to prevent some of the, the bad um, you know, side effects of aging. It's an argument against what traditionally has been referred to as as retirement or or, or those things. And yet it becomes more problematic in a culture that is subsumed in ageism in so many respects. Mm. Boy, you have really hit on really a real conundrum Um, because, frankly, most people don't want – most people are going to live – long past 65, the retirement age. Um, most people can't actually afford to retire at 65, not in our, and not in our generation or my generation. Um, and so they're going to have to, with this new math of midlife career, they're going to have to think about how can I do something that is sustainable for another 15, 20 years? How can I do this until I'm 70 or, you know, even later because I may have to earn an income? And what, what's happened is there's a, something called an encore, mo- mo- excuse me, encore movement where people who are middle-aged are saying, this isn't sustainable for me, this particular job. It doesn't have enough meaning. So I am going to really look deep in myself, see what my passions are, and not just jump into the void of, you know, I'm going to become a chef. But how can I use my my skills and experience for the greater good? How can I do something that actually has meaning, that will give me something of a legacy, and, and that I feel good about every day and jump, up at, jump out of bed? And, the, and what we're seeing is that um, people, yes, they run into ageism, of course, but what we're seeing is that there is this untapped resource that's according to Mark Friedman, who who's basically began the Encore movement. But there's this untapped resource of baby boomers with all of this skill, all this mental acuity, all of this energy, all this vitality. And they don't want to be put out to pasture. So basically what's got to happen in the next few years is society's going to have to figure out how do we use them really well because they want to be used and they want to be used in a meaningful way. And that's a transition that's going on right now. It is not a problem that's been solved. It's a problem that needs to be solved. And there are some, there's some hopeful hints that it's getting solved, but, but it's going to be a while before that happens. 
In doing that, how do we begin to define, first of all, midlife? What are we talking about? Because if we had this discussion 20 years ago, it would be a different answer. It would be, yes. Okay, so midlife has kind of shifted um, with the baby boomer generation because baby boomers are healthier and living longer and working longer the age has gone up. So it used to be about 40 to 60. And now researchers are really looking more at 45 to 65. And even that is inaccurate because midlife is really a mindset. If you ask your vital 70-year-old friend who looks 50, who is out running every day, training for a marathon, that person is not going to say he's old or she's old. That person is going to say, well, you know, I feel I feel really great. I, I guess... I feel middle-aged. And I think that you see more and more of that. So it's really a mindset. Some people feel old at 60 and some people feel middle-aged at 70 um, or 75. And uh, so it's very personal. But the researchers have actually shifted the age bracket a little bit. One of the other interesting things is how baby boomers are perceiving millennials today, how they're perceiving the Mm -hmm. younger generation and how that makes them feel by comparison. There's a certain smugness that plays itself out, I would argue, in very positive ways for boomers. Yes, yes. I actually think this is um, one of those teaching moments uh, when baby boomers look at millennials. Actually, the surveys are quite, the surveys by Gallup are quite stunning and depressing. What they find is that only about a third of baby boomers and Gen Xers are actually engaged in their work, and almost one out of five is actively disengaged, meaning they're really mad, they're toxic, uh, they don't like their work at all. And when you ask them why, when Gallup researchers ask them why, a lot of times they cite the fact that they don't think they're getting the opportunities that the younger people are, that they feel that they're being passed over, they're not learning, they're not being challenged, and they feel trapped because they can't leave their job because they have responsibilities. So I think there is almost a generational resentment that um, can happen among many people, boomers toward millennials. I would argue, and many, many people would argue, that that is precisely the wrong thing to do. Midlife, Eric Erickson, the psychologist, talked about midlife, um, the, the hallmark of a healthy midlife being generativity. And that is not investing inward, my career, my home, my family, but investing outward into the next generation, or he expanded it you know, into causes or communities or whatever. But basically, it's it's... It's investing downhill as opposed to into yourself. And that is, that it, it seems to me is the key to actually having a fulfilling midlife career. Is you look around and you go, these kids are terrific. They are much smarter on me on the computer, on the internet and all of that. I have some wisdom. Maybe I can help them out. Maybe I can help them and they can help me. And I think that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of mindset that makes for a really happy career, and it makes for a really happy workplace, too. It's also creating some unique bonds, and, and this goes to the, the family yeah. and relationship issue, some unique bonds skipping across generations between grandparents and millennials, in some cases, or grandparents <laughs> and younger children. Yes, you do. You do see that a lot. And it's because grandparents are, are living so much longer. The kids actually have a chance to, to get to know them a little bit. Yes, you see, you see that a lot. And that, again, is, is just um, the grandparents who invest in their, in their grandkids 
are the happy grandparents, the psychologically robust grandparents, and they're going to give live longer as well because as those kids grow up, they're going to become more and more interesting. They're going to be a larger, kind of more vibrant part of their life, and and it's a win-win. Talk about the obsessiveness that we see sometimes in boomers in dealing with all these issues, the brain training that's nonstop, the mm. physical exercise that's nonstop, all with an eye towards not necessarily anything other than putting off the aging process. Right, right. And and I think that is, you referred to this earlier, the sense of fear. And if you are doing brain training out of fear or even physical exercise out of fear, my my hope is that those will morph into pure pleasure. Um, if you are, if you start running just out of fear, but you begin to enjoy it and you join a running club and you run and you train for your mar- first marathon, that fear was worth it in the end because now you're enjoying it and now it's actually a real hobby that means something to you. You know, with things like brain training, what can I do to to preserve my brain? What researchers will tell you is. It's not a particularly good idea to sit in front of your computer and and do these brain training exercises. Far better to find something that you really love and learn about it and engage it, engage with it. Far better to, for example, one there was one study of of people in their 60s and they um, they were given a choice between doing something pleasurable like going to the movies or listening to the radio or doing something that was hard and challenge, challenging like digital photography. And what they found is that these people who did digital photography both fell in love with it, but also it's very complicated. It's really hard to learn. And um, you have to amass a lot of a lot of knowledge in a relatively brief amount of time. Those people actually turn back their brain clocks. Their memories were much sharper, and uh, than than the other people who did just pleasurable activities. So, what I guess the point I'm saying is. What you should do is not sit around and think, how can I stop my brain from deteriorating? What you should do is think, what is the, what is the thing that I would like to learn about that I would really enjoy, that I've always wanted to do? How can I learn about it? Because doing it will do just as much as brain training, probably more, because you'll stick with it. What are we seeing in terms of the impact and the results when we look at differences in, in economics and class? You are so right. You are so right. I mean, midlife is different for for people with a high school degree. Midlife comes earlier when you have less education under your belt. So people with a high school degree, they begin life earlier, right? They get out of, they graduate from high school and they begin life. They get married or have children and, and by the time they're in their early 20s and by their children, their children are gone, it's, you know, they're 40 years old. That's about when midlife is kind of beginning for people with more education. People with more education are, they're deferring having children. And so you often see people just beginning to have kids in their late 30s. They're in a different place at age 40 than someone with less education. And so midlife itself is different depending on your economic class and your your education level. Not only that, I really think that midlife crisis is a privileged problem. I think people that are um, working two jobs, um, just trying both both partners just trying to make ends meet, or you're a single mom or a single dad or whatever, and you don't have a high-paying job, 
in a way, you don't have time and luxury for a midlife crisis. And so, in a way, this is midlife crisis is is a you know a luxury good in a way. You know, you also see this in other ways, Jeff. You also see a privilege in other ways. Marriage. We're going through a gray divorce revolution. Marriage, baby boomers are divorcing in record numbers um, twi- at twice the rate as their parents. But some marriages are doing famously well, and other marriages are just doing really badly. Well, the difference tends to be wealth and education level. So if you are wealthy and educated, you have the time, you have the money to buy time to invest in your spouse. Not just your kids, but your spouse. You have time to go on date nights. You have time maybe to go on a short vacation with your spouse. You, you, have, the money, you have the money to do that. People who don't, what they find is that their midlife is just chaotic. It's working, but both spouses working. It's investing in the kids and you know, taking them to their games and carpooling and all of that, and you don't have time to invest in your spouse. So you can see that marriages with that kind of stress actually fare worse than the marriages of privileged, wealthier, and educated, educated couples. And so midlife, I mean, education is, and wealth are really the great divide as to whether you have a really strong marriage, whether you have a midlife crisis, whether you have a really good career, whether you have choices in your career. It's, once again, a lot of it comes down to wealth and education. Showing that, that really the divides that exist in the society as a whole will be reflected in the aging baby boomer population yes. and, and the pressures that that puts on society, on health care, on, on economic resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have no idea what the next few years were like. Maybe it will be like. I mean, maybe they will begin to find some kind of um, way to roll back Alzheimer's or prevent it. Um, maybe they will, which will be huge for baby boomers and the healthcare system, but I kind of, I, I kind of worry about what's, like everyone else, I kind of worry about what's coming ahead with this bulge of baby boomers who are living longer, out, their bodies outliving their minds in some ways, and um, some of them will be okay because they will have put away for retirement and long-term healthcare, and some of them won't be okay, and this is, this is scary. Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Her book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barbara, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Thank you.